Oh, thanks, Karen. Somebody has helpfully tidied it away, which is wonderful efficiency. Now, there's a great opening to a sermon, isn't it? How about we pray? How about we pray? Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you're good and gracious and kind. I thank you, Father, that you're present with us because you fill the earth and the heavens. Father, we ask today that as we look at your word, that by your Holy Spirit you would take this word and set it on fire. Heavenly Father, help us to be challenged and changed by what we hear. But we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, on a uh, really up and coordinated kind of opening, I want to ask you, which is sadder? Uh, so a little, little compare and contrast kind of moment to, uh, to start us off. Which, which is sadder? Is it the, uh, the non-practicing gym member? Uh, the person with the season ticket to wet and wild, or what's it now called? Raging waters or something, who's uh, afraid of water? The, uh, the person who has the season pass to Taronga Zoo, who's allergic to animals? Or the non-practicing Christian? I want to suggest to you today that the non-practicing Christian isn't actually a category at all. Thank you, Caro. Isn't actually a category at all. I want to show you that it can't exist and it shouldn't exist. Because if the non-practicing Christian exists, then the trajectory of the church is one of extinction. Is it not? Do you remember what I said last week? I said that the church is only ever one generation away from extinction. It's only ever one generation away from extinction because if you and I aren't sharing the faith, if we're not passing it on, then Christianity stops with us. Now, that should be a wake-up call, shouldn't it? What are we doing? What is the answer to a church that always, perennially, stands on the brink of extinction? What should we do? Well, last week I suggested to you that the answer has to be in what we're trying to focus on next year. Growing and maturing apprentices. That has to be the answer. Growing apprentices, because there need to be more in here than are today, although I'm delighted that you're here. We need more people in here because they're all still out there. Growing apprentices and maturing those of us who are in here so that we grow deeper and deeper in our knowledge and love of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's our focus for next year, growing and maturing apprentices. Well, to encourage us down that path today, we're going to look at John's account of Jesus' life. And so if you can open that up, that would be fantastic. As you turn there to John chapter 1, I'm wondering if anyone can tell me who this is. Yes, okay, so we had a little bit of a discussion. George Foreman, is that who's on the deck, is it, mate? Um, so is it, is it Cassius Clay or is it Muhammad Ali, right? But a famous person who's famous because he said what? Look at you guys. That works out perfectly because here's one I prepared earlier. That's great. Okay, I said I am the greatest. And when you're great, you know, heavyweight, title holder, etc., etc. when you're great, okay, then someone like Muhammad Ali is very happy to draw attention to, to himself. What I want you to see is something extraordinary that happens in John's account of the start of Jesus' ministry. We're in John chapter 1 and uh, verse 35. It says in verse 35, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. Now, do you know who that John is? It's not the John who wrote the gospel, by the way. It's not John's gospel. That's not the John. It's John the Baptist. And I want you to see what John the Baptist has. John the Baptist has two what? 
He has two disciples. That's extreme. It's interesting in its own right. John the Baptist was famous. He was famous in Jerusalem and throughout all Judea. People were flocking out of the country, out into the countryside to see John and to hear what he said as a fiery preacher and to be baptized in the river for repentance. So here's John. He's powerful in Israel. He has disciples following him. But I want you to see what happens. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? It's funny, isn't it? Jesus walking, What, what do you guys want? What do they want? Jesus said, uh, turn around, they asked Jesus, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, what are you, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Now, here's the bit I want to make as an opening. Here's the bit I want to make as an opening. It takes a pretty humble leader to point to one greater than you. John the Baptist was famous. John the Baptist was a religious leader of power in Israel. And yet he sees Jesus and he says, that guy, his sandals, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And when he says, that's the Lamb of God, two of his disciples leave and follow Jesus. And he wants that. In fact, elsewhere, John says, he must become greater, I must become less. What a great leader. To point to someone who is greater than him. Now, now he says, he says this one is the Lamb of God. Now, if you looked at Jesus, guess what you didn't see? You didn't see a sheep. Okay, that's a good answer. You didn't see a sheep. You saw a, a, a carpenter. You saw a bloke walking along. Behold the Lamb of God. And they go, where, where were the Lamb? Why? Why Lamb of God? Why is Jesus called the Lamb of God by John the Baptist? Well, lambs turn up in the Old Testament quite a lot. Do you remember the story of Abraham and his son? They, they were going up to a mountain to offer a sacrifice. And as they're walking up, uh, his, his boy says, hey, Dad, where's the sheep for the sacrifice? And Abraham goes, don't worry, the Lord will provide. They get to the point where his son is bound with rope on the altar. Abraham has the knife like this, and a voice comes from heaven, Abraham. And he goes, yep, you have my full attention right now, God. And he looks up, and he sees a ram, a lamb that's caught in the, in the thickets. And so in that day, he undoes his son and puts this sheep in the place of his son. So in the Old Testament, we see the lamb is a substitute for the son. Then we see in the Passover. Do you guys know that the people of God were in slavery in Egypt? You know that, don't you? And then God chose to lead them out. But he gave Egypt 10 plagues because Pharaoh was really stubborn. The 10th plague was going to be the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. The death of all the firstborn in Egypt. But God said to his people, you can get out of this. Do you know the way you can do it? Take a lamb, slaughter it on behalf of your firstborn son and put its blood over the doorway of your house. And then when the angel of death comes, it will pass over your house. You see? And so in the Old Testament, we see that the lamb is a substitute for the firstborn. And then we see in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, we see not only that we all like sheep have gone astray, but that there is ba ba do ba ba. Yes, well done. I sat down at the end of my sermon and someone leaned over and said to me, just so we're clear, ba ba do ba ba. I just needed to get that out. So good, well done. You've been purged. That's excellent. So in Isaiah 53, we're told that one will die 
for the sins of the world, the transgressions of the world will be placed on him and he will die. Who is the Lamb of God? Well, the Lamb of God is the substitute for the sinner. So when John the Baptist says, there's the Lamb of God, he's picking up all of this and saying that the man from Nazareth is those things in God's plan. But I want you to say something really unusual in, in, in this little exchange. You know, Jesus says, what do you want? And they say, hey, teacher, could we have a pearl of wisdom? No. Nope. Hey, teacher, can, can you teach us how to pray? No. Nope. Hey, teacher, where are you staying? That's odd, isn't it? Brand new teacher, first question, where are you staying? That is very strange, is it not? And Jesus says, come and see. He doesn't say, that's a silly question, lads. Uh, I, I say unto thee, irrelevant questions don't get answered. He doesn't say that. He says, come and see. Why? Because for Jesus, his invitation is into his home and into his life. If you're to be a follower of Jesus, he invites you into his life to walk with him and to follow him. See, if we're to be Jesus' apprentices, we are following the one. Have a listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Why do I want to follow Jesus? Why do I want to be an apprentice to Jesus? We follow Jesus because he alone can cleanse us completely from our sins. He's the lamb of God. I'm going to follow that one. I'm with Jesus. Now, uh, in Camden, this is a very important piece of information, in Camden there's a great burger shop. And uh, it's called Squeeze and Grind. Is anyone familiar with Squeeze and Grind? Now there, they have this thing called the um, CFC, Camden Fried Chicken Burger. Has anyone had this? All right, I'm recommending the the Camden Fried Chicken Burger to you. Uh, You might die a shorter life. You you might live a shorter life, right? But I tell you, it'll be a happy life, okay? It's it's deadly good. Like, it's really, really good. And and I was looking them up on Facebook and... um, there's all sorts of reviews, people being very happy about uh, squeezing grind. And then it says, I've been coming here for a long time and often, re- often recommended to friends and out-of-town visitors. You see, when you find something good, and I'm telling you that that's a good burger, when, when you find something good, what do you do? Share it. You naturally share it. Have a look at what happens next. Uh, the, the two have followed Jesus. And then in verse 40, we read this, Andrew, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. Now, can I just point out, I know, I just want to say this. Who is Andrew? Andrew is identified as Simon Peter's brother. Do you see this? Now, we haven't met Simon Peter yet, right? But the introduction to Andrew is that Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. Isn't that extraordinary? He doesn't actually have his own identity. It's not, hey, here's Andrew. It's Andrew who is Simon Peter's brother. Now, here's a wonderful thought for you. What does he do next? Have a a look at what happened. Uh, The first thing, he says in verse 41, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Here's a radical thought for you guys. What if Jesus has called you brilliant? What if the most amazing thing that Jesus does through you is let you point somebody else to Jesus? You see, Andrew wouldn't be famous. He's Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, right? 
He's not famous in his own right, really. He's famous because his brother was the foundation for the early church. Are you, are you with me? And so he's famous because he chose to give away the very thing that he found. We always share what's good. And in this case, Andrew had found what is good. And when he passed it on, I'm telling you, it changed the world. Changed the world. And what did he say that changed the world? Well, he said to, uh, he said to Simon, hey, we found the Messiah. And you guys go, yep, that's what I thought you'd do. Oh, wow, we found the Messiah. Well, what, what does that even mean? What does it mean to find the Messiah? Well, Messiah, when translated, is anointed. Anointed. Anointed with oil. And you go, great, someone had a cooking accident, and now we're supposed to be excited, right? It's a joke, right? It's a little joke. It's a little joke in there. It's good. Now, here's the thing. To be anointed with oil actually has really spe- specific significance in the Bible. Isaiah says in Isaiah 61, as a prophet, he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Prophets are anointed. Priests are anointed in the Old Testament. In Exodus 30.30, it says, Anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Priests are anointed. And then in 1 Samuel 10.1, we see that kings are anointed. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When he says we found the Messiah, he's saying we found the one who God has set aside for his purposes, the one who is the prophet, the priest, and the king. See, why do we follow Jesus? We follow Jesus because I need a prophet to tell me God's word. I need a priest to help me meet with God. I need a king to lead me. And so in Jesus, we follow Jesus because he is worthy of our honour and because he meets our needs in a way that no one else can. Well, back in the day, there used to be a company called Lucky Gold Stars. Anyone heard of them? Lucky Gold Star? Uh, They used to make um, electronics. And uh, they used to come, uh, well, they still do, come, come from Korea, right? And it used to be, used to be, back in the day, you'd say, can anything good come from Korea? Is anyone old enough to remember this? It used to be the case. It used to be the same with Taiwan, made in Taiwan, right? And now they make all the chips that go into our iPhones. It used to be that you were able to say this place, can anything good come from this place? Have a look at what follows here in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. (laughs) Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Well, come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You'll see greater things than that. Then he added, Very truly, I tell you, You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a fascinating little exchange. He starts off 
Notice again, it's a good thing. He's found the good thing, Jesus. And so he says, we've found the one Moses and the prophets wrote about. Just the natural next stuff. Nobody had to be trained to do evangelism yet. Are you with me, church? If you find Jesus, the natural next thing you do is, <laughs> you won't believe who I found. I found the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. The hope of Israel. I found him. Who is he? Well, he's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, which prompts, can anything good come from Nazareth? He goes, look, I don't care what the title is. I'm telling you, that's a stinkhole, right? It's a dive. But here's the really interesting thing, church. You and I can never hear Nazareth without connecting it to Jesus, can we? But Jesus had to have been about 30 when he starts his ministry. And his life, before he steps out into public, must have been so ordinary that Nazareth had no reputation before he was revealed to the world. Do you see this? This is actually really remarkable. Nazareth wasn't on the map as the hometown of Jesus. It wasn't the case. Was just a dive. Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? I love this answer. Come and see. Come and see. He goes, I don't have a brilliant answer for you. I'm not going to try and argue with you. I'm not, but I want you to meet Jesus. Why don't you? Just, just come along. Come along and meet Jesus. Now he meets Jesus. Jesus shows an extraordinary insight into his life, doesn't he? I saw you, I know you. Nathaniel's like, whoa, what does he say? Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. That's a pretty good turnaround, isn't it? Nobody who's from Nazareth can be worth anything. To you are the one who is above everything. How does it change? He met Jesus. Here's my encouragement. I think we still need to invite people to come and see. I think we need to invite people to come and see. Not, not the best clip, not, not the coolest videos, not the best songs, not the, no, no, no. Come and meet Jesus. At the back of the church, we have a, a little thing like this. It's called the Essential Jesus. It's Mark's gospel in a paperback. It's this big. Take about 45 minutes to read. You're having a conversation with someone at work, a family member, and they say, I don't get why you're into this whole Jesus thing. And you go, you know what? Come and see. Why don't you read this and just see who Jesus is? If at the end of this you go, that's a load of junk, at least you've checked him out. But right now you don't know him. So what I encourage you, at the back, these are free. Grab one, put it in the hands. Say, come and see. I think we need to be doing this more and more, church. Come and see. We follow Jesus because the man from Nazareth, where nothing good can come from, is also the son of God. That's an extraordinary and amazing truth. You know, many people responded to the invitation to come and follow Jesus. And that takes us to our reading from Mark, uh, in Mark chapter 1. I think it's on page 1001 in your Bibles. Not sure about the big ones. But they're big pages. You flip through until you find it. But um, we, Cara and I were um, we were in Bali a little while ago, and uh, as the um, as the the fishing fleet was coming in in the morning, can I tell you, it is a hive of activity, right? There are boats being pulled up. There are nets being cleaned. There are people picking their buckets of fish up and taking them to the markets. Everybody who's there is on a mission, probably to get home and sleep, right? Because they've been out all night. Okay, and, and so. If you walked up to someone on that day and said, I'd love to have a really nice conversation with you at this point in time, most people wouldn't have time for a chat because they're on a mission. I want you to see what happens when Jesus says, come follow me. Have a look at Mark chapter 1 and verses 16 and following. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. 
Come follow me, said Jesus, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Incidentally, that leaves the nets cast out. Are you with me? They were casting the nets. Jesus says, come follow me. They didn't even bother to pull them in. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired men and followed him. I want you to see Jesus' call is compelling. When Jesus says, come follow me, those who hear it respond with all of their life and all of their heart. They're all in to the call of Jesus. And those who heard the call of Jesus also heard the command of Jesus. And the command of Jesus was to go and make disciples of all nations. And they did it. They did it all the way from Israel, all the way around uh, to to modern-day Turkey, into Greece, across into Rome and to Italy, down into Egypt. The whole Roman world heard the good news. And so we see in Acts chapter 11, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Were called Christians first at Antioch. How wonderful. Notice this, this word disciples. So why do we call them apprentices? Come on, church. Is it just kind of you're looking to be cutting edge and cool? Well, maybe I am. But, but here's the thing. If I tell you to go and be a disciple to Jesus, you'll go, well, what, what do I do? What do I actually do if I'm a disciple of Jesus? Let me talk to you for a second about apprenticeships. Has anyone done an apprenticeship here? Yeah, a couple of you have. Fantastic. Uh, I heard from a couple of you online, which is fantastic. Here's some things I think you need to have to be an apprentice. You need a master or a teacher. You need someone to model, to show you what it looks like to do the job at the professional level. You You need a master to train and teach you, to model to you. You need to do some book work. You need to go to TAFE and you need to do your study. You need some book work to stretch you. You also need some prac work to strengthen you. You you, you can't just have all the book work done and then be, cool, I'm ready to graduate. Being an apprentice isn't at uni, right? In uni, you fill your brain up. Being an apprentice, you fill your head up and your hands up at the same time. It's really interesting. You put the two together. And so we have a master, we have book work, we have prac work, and there is some self-work required. We, we actually need to do the integration. We need to take the stuff that we're learning from the books and the stuff that we're doing with our hands and integrate them together. You need to pull them together to secure the things that you are learning. Well, that's what it means to be an apprentice. It's worth saying there's no mastery, mastery without a, a master. There's no apprenticeship if you don't have a master. Are you with me? You can't say, I'm going to start an apprenticeship tomorrow. No, no, no. You're just a someone with a big idea. You can't do it unless you're following somebody who's qualified and trained. Are you with me? All right, let's, let's take it and turn it into Jesus apprentices. I think you guys are going to get this, okay? okay. Who's the master? Ah, oh, it's good. It's a good answer. So Jesus is the master. No problems. That's good so far. What's the book work do you think we've got to do? Here's one we prepared earlier. Okay, here's the Bible. That's the book work. So we have a master, we have book work to do. What's the prac work? Well, we need to be uh, giving and living the message of new life, don't we? In James it says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
we've got to be people who are doing the things that we're learning and reading. So we're doing the prac work. And, and then what's the self-work? Where, where do we do the integration? Where do we pull it all together? Well, I think that's in prayer, isn't it? It's when we prepare for the doing. It's where we reflect on the learning. It's where we engage with our teacher. So when I tell you to be an apprentice to Jesus, can you see what you've got to do? Makes sense, doesn't it? Hopefully. And here's what I want to say to take this kind of round where we started. I think to say you're a non-practicing Christian is actually to say you're a non-Christian. That there is no way that you can say I'm an apprentice to Jesus and I don't do the book work, I don't do the prac work, and I don't do the self work. I would say to you, do you actually have a master at all? And I'd say the answer to that is no. To be non-practicing is to be non-Christian. So here's the thing. Jesus talks about us being apprentices, and what he says is the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who's fully trained will be like their teacher. Who's our teacher? So when we're fully trained, we'll be more and more like, you guys have got this, it's fantastic, right? Really, really good. So how will I know how I'm going in my apprenticeship? I'll be more and more like my master. How beautiful. How beautiful. So how do we respond? Well, here's the thing. I had a bit of a think about this. I'm like, I want to tell you guys, let's go and be great at following Jesus, right? But I thought, well, you know what? What if I told you all, what I want you to do is go and become great at karate next year? Has anyone done a martial art here? My goodness, I'm in big trouble. All right, great. This illustration worked much better at 8.45, but okay, let's give it a go. So I want to get really good at karate. You guys all correct me later, okay? So just come and talk to me. So if I, if I want to get really good at karate, what do I do? Well, first of all, I've got to find a really good master, right? That makes sense, doesn't it? I want to find someone who's excellent at it, who has a great reputation, who is very disciplined, who's at the absolute height of their ability to do it. That's what I want. Number one, I need a really good master. Secondly, if I want to get really great at karate, I don't just get the handbook, do I? Okay. I've actually got to be daily doing the practice. Why? I've got new muscles to build, certainly in my case. Right? I've got new muscles to build. I've got new skills to learn. If I was told you next year is all about you becoming awesome at karate and you said, yeah, I'm not going to do any practice, what would someone who is talking to you say? You're hopeless. There is no way you'll be able to do that. You must practice. Number three, I reckon you actually need to get, part of being good at karate is practice this mindfulness thing, right? To actually be able to be centered and to be present and to be able to, hmm, interesting, isn't it? You'd have to really invest in that in order to make sure that all these other skills that you were learning were actually be able to be brought into the world in the right way. And then if you were learning karate and you thought it was really good for you, it'd be almost impossible for me to imagine you thought it was great and you kept your kids out of it. I'll let them make up their own mind when they're old enough to... No, no, no. If you thought it was great, what you'd be doing is you'd be training, you'd be passing on what you're learning to them straight away at home, wouldn't you? And you'd want to draw them into a place where they could learn at their own level by teachers who were focused on teaching them at their level. And if I was really getting into this karate thing, oh, well, I guess I'd really want to understand the ancient literature that kind of stood behind it, wouldn't I? I'd want to understand its foundations and its traditions and its history. And I might even have a bash at learning some of the language in order to really understand what I'm doing. 
It, it puts to shame the person who says that they're a non-practicing Christian, though, doesn't it? And guys, here's the amazing thing. We never let our kids miss a sport appointment, do we? They can't possibly miss it. I mean, if I sign them up at the start of the season, they can't miss a game, can they? So here's the thing, guys. What if we took the devotion that we would put into learning a skill like karate and applied it to following a much greater master? The bookwork, the prac work, the centering, the time, the focus on the original ancient scriptures. You can see if someone told you that they were being devoted to learning karate, you would expect this amazing thing from them. But yet we say we can follow Jesus and make no effort. Doesn't make any sense, does it? So church, what I want to do is urge you, exhort you to put the kind of effort you might put into doing a brand new skill into doing a skill that maybe you've had forever. Maybe you're just learning. As apprentices to Jesus, we have a master, and what I want to encourage you to do is to trust and obey your Messiah. We have a book to look, and I I want to encourage you to, to know the word of your prophet. Get to know the word of your prophet. Get to know Jesus in the pages of Scripture. And I was talking just before, how do you fit it into your life? Well, Kara and I put our Bibles in front of our breakfast. You're always reading something at breakfast, aren't you? Tell me, is there anyone here who's not reading anything at breakfast? Someone who's driving. Okay, right, okay, very good. In which case, I recommend Dwell as an app to you or a Bible Gateway, and I say get it in your head. But for the rest of you who sit there and read the cornflakes packet or whatever it is that your eyes look at, don't do it. Put the Bible in front of you every single day. You see, when I say be more like Jesus and you go, I don't know what Jesus is like, Wouldn't it be great if someone had written down four accounts of Jesus' life for us? You're looking at me strangely, church. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, it would be, wouldn't it? What if I was utterly unfamiliar with them? That'd be a tragedy, wouldn't it? As an apprentice to Jesus, I know his language, I know his thoughts, I see his action. How am I going to be more like him? I'm going to get to know him better here. Are you with me? So we we need to trust and obey our Messiah. We need to get to know your prophet. We need to follow the way of our king. I need to be more like Jesus, and I need to pray to and with my priest. You see, Jesus is calling each one of you. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. That's what he's saying to you today. Will you follow him with the sort of devotion you gladly give to other areas of your life, but put the best of yourself to following Jesus. That is what Growing and Maturing Apprentices is all about for next year. And I want to pray for us that we would take up a Jesus apprenticeship. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are good. I thank you for your beautiful son. I pray that you might mercifully help us to follow him with all of our hearts and that we might take up a Jesus apprenticeship until we see him face to face. We ask this in his name. Amen.